You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Morning, friends. Glad you're here. Thanks for joining us today. The date is December 1st, 1955, in the waning hours of dusk as the sun set on another 60-degree southern day, a 42-year-old seamstress named Rosa Parks stepped on a bus and changed the world. She took her spot in the section marked colored, according to the segregationist policy of her small town, and soon the bus began to fill up. Every seat was eventually taken, and later on the route, numerous white men joined in order to sit and they had nowhere to go. Every seat was taken, so the driver demanded that Parks, along with numerous other folks in the colored section, vacate their seats for these white men to sit. The bus driver's exact words were, y'all better make it light on yourselves and let me have those seats. And while two other men around her chose to leave their seats empty, this bold and courageous black woman, all of five foot three, refused. And so the bus driver called the cops. Parks was arrested. She lost her job. She faced vicious ridicule. And suddenly, the national spotlight was thrown onto this small town of Montgomery, Alabama. Four days later, a collection of Christian ministers in the city came together to reform these sorts of policies. They called their group the Montgomery Improvement Association, and they chose one particularly charismatic and young leader. Martin Luther King Jr. was his name. Fast forward a month, and despite the best efforts of this association, very little had changed. Boycotts weren't working, and the government wasn't changing their racist policies, and maybe worst of all, King had a target on his back now. On January 26th, about a month and a half later, King was arrested for driving 30 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, and he was jailed overnight for that offense. And then, when he returned home, he arrived to dozens of anonymous death threats over voicemail. Notes and letters threatening violence upon his family, and even rumors of bombs being planted under his home. And so naturally, that night, he had trouble sleeping. All of the noisy and angry voices from the radio and TV and phone felt overwhelming to him, and so he rolled out of bed, he walked to the kitchen, he made himself a cup of coffee. And then, in the quiet, away from all of the noise and distraction of other voices and devices, he sat with focused attention and prayed. Years later, in a sermon, he reflected on that night. He said this, I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. And I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I am weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. And I'll tell you, I've seen lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on. He promised never to leave me. And I'm going to go on believing in him. It was that night, away from the busyness of distractions from the world around him, that Reverend King 
claimed his groundbreaking role in the civil rights movement really began. It was that night that he understood who God was and who he was and what his life was meant to look like. It happened in the quiet, friends, not in the busy. King's story is a perfect example of what Nobel Prize winning author Edith Wharton called the power of sustained attention. A devoted time where our hearts and our minds are deeply attentive to God and our souls. And the story of King, I think, also exposes a problem in our own time. See, these formative spaces of quiet, these moments of margin where we can practice sustained attention, have almost entirely disappeared. These are the sorts of spaces that drove people like Martin Luther King and William Wilberforce and St. Francis and Jesus himself. This is what drove them to become the people they were, people of love and peace in the world. And the spaces are all but gone in our lives. Because in our digital age, there is more stealing our attention than ever before. We actually live in a time that economists refer to as an attention economy. The primary commodity in America right now is your attention. Marketers, organizations, online entities have built their entire business models around one thing, gaining and keeping your attention around the clock as much as possible. And that's largely happening through our screens and our digital devices. And you actually don't have to take my word for that. You can take the word of the people who have invented all of these devices. There's a recent interview with Facebook's first president, uh, Sean Parker is his name, who's played by Justin Timberlake in the movie. If you have if you've seen the show, Social Network, great movie, worth watching. Sean Parker said this about the founding of Facebook. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. And that means we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. This is the guy who made it, by the way. It's a social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Ready to pull out your phone and hop on social media now? Echoing that same sentiment, recently the CEO of Netflix was asked who their greatest competitor was. He had a one-word answer. Sleep. Sleep is their only competitor. He does not view any other service as a competitor other than sleep. There's a computer scientist named Tristan Harris who's talked at length about this. Uh, he has been called by The Atlantic the closest thing that the tech industry has to a conscience. And uh, he was working at Google at one point and started to realize the harmful and unchecked effects of all of the tech that he was making. And so he left Google behind. He left a great job and a great career path behind, and he founded a nonprofit called the Center for Humane Technology. Later on, in a 60 Minutes interview with Anderson Cooper, he called our present digital age human downgrading. We're not improving, we're getting worse, he says. He claims that the constant busyness and noise of our devices has created this interconnected system of mutually reinforcing harms. Addiction, distraction, isolation, polarization, fake news, and the rest. And it all is working together to remove any spaces of quiet, focused attention and replace them with busy distraction, just like the phones falling in the back of the room will do, right? <laughs> it's amazing. They can't stop. That's why Tristan Harris calls our current culture an arms race for our attention. Militaristic language. And the science shows us that we're buying in hook, line, and sinker. We have become the most overbusy and distracted generation in human history. 
The average millennial with a smartphone today spends more than five hours per day on it. Scientists have even discovered a remarkable new disorder that's sweeping the nation. It's called phantom vibration syndrome. And those of you that have a smartphone know what this is without me starting to describe it. It's that feeling where you think you have a text or a call coming in and your body responds with a feeling of vibration except nothing has actually happened. You're making it up. It's all in your mind because you're constantly connected. Nate's smiling. Nate knows phantom vibration syndrome. I do too. I'm with you. One doctor in this study put it this way. Through bodily habit, your phone has actually become a part of you. Another recent study on human attention spans shows that 25 years ago, the human attention span on average was about 12 seconds. This is before the digital age. We didn't have a lot of room to work with at that point. It's now down to eight seconds. To put that in perspective, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. We are losing to goldfish in our present culture. I think uh, James Williams, who's a tech ethicist at Oxford, summed it up well. He called our current culture the largest, most standardized, most centralized form of attention control in human history. Welcome to church. You guys, we are losing our ability to be attentive to God, to others, and to our own souls. We're being driven to another Instagram scroll or another email or another adorable video of a golden retriever dressed like Batman. I promise that's not a personal example. That's just random, pulled out of the sky. And that loss of quiet, sustained attention is having a devastating toll on our spiritual lives. There's an author named Andrew Sullivan who recently wrote about this in his own experience. He was realizing the effect that his digital devices were having on him, and so he checked himself into a digital detox center. And before he did that, he did not consider himself a spiritual or religious person in any meaningful way. But as soon as his devices were removed, he said he was opened up to all these spiritual experiences and thoughts and feelings that he had never had before. And he wrote an article all about his experience. The article is called, I Used to Be a Human Being, which is just an amazing title for an article. And in his last couple paragraphs, he phrased his experience this way. I think it's worth sharing because it's remarkable. I think he hits the nail on the head. He says, modernity slowly weakens spirituality by design and accident in favor of commerce, consumption. It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of constant noise and action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. Silence became, over the centuries, old-fashioned, even a symbol of the useless superstitions we had left behind. And the smartphone revolution of the past decade can be seen in some ways as the final twist of the ratchet, in which those few moments of quiet, the tiny cracks of inactivity in our lives, are being methodically filled with more stimulus and noise. And then he summarized it this way. He said, if churches came to realize that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. You guys, without the power of quiet, sustained attention on God and our souls, our spiritual lives are destined for ruin. If we persist in the dominant cultural practice of busyness and distraction, we can't have a deep life of wholeness with God. Which is why we've made this series here at Midtown. It's called The Cure for Busyness. We've set aside these last two weeks and this week to explore the ways in which Jesus and the scriptures both give voice to the human propensity we have towards busyness and distraction and inattentiveness, but then also give us practices and principles on how we can correct those things, on how we can actually find the cure for our busy minds and hearts and lives. 
And today, to wrap up this series, we're going to land with maybe the most obvious source of busyness in our lives, our digital devices. And the scriptures, in the strictest terms, do not directly address smartphones or TV shows or the third season of Love is Blind or whatever it is you're watching at home. So that means I can't stand up here and demand that you take out your phone and smash it in half and throw it against the wall. Though that might be a good idea for some of us. If you're feeling that right now, it might be worth thinking about. And I'm not going to claim that we need to get back to the good old days before we had tech, where we were like on the frontier and marching the Oregon Trail and dying of dysentery at age 34 or whatever. You guys remember Oregon Trail, the game? Oh, yeah. Always forge the river, right? Always forge the river. Yeah. <laughs> ben, put your phone away, man. Come on. Come on. Oh, man. <laughs> to be clear, the Bible is not inherently opposed to technology or good resources. There are actually good parts to our tech. I am glad I get to know the weather before I go outside. I'm glad I have maps to get me places. Those are important things. But the Bible does have lots to say about our attention. And the way that our bodies and our minds and our souls are formed, are shaped by what we give our attention to. And so the cure for busyness of constant noise and distraction in our digital age is not just some new behavior or rejection, though that may be helpful. It's instead a reorientation of our attention towards the right things in the right ways. And there's maybe no more concise expression of that idea of reoriented attention than the one we find in Colossians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, friends, open it with me to the book of Colossians. This is near the backs of your Bibles, if you're flipping there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 4 together. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the earliest years of the church, there was a consistent tension that arose in the lives of Jesus' followers. On the one hand, these were people who had been radically transformed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul actually references that sort of transformation here directly in this passage. He says, you have died and you have been raised. Death and resurrection language. See, the earliest Christians knew that a part of the message of Jesus was that there was a way of being human that led to death and decay and unhealth. And that way is the self-driven way. A way where we live as our own gods, defining good and evil on our own terms at the expense of others. And all of us, in our own ways, have exhibited symptoms of that way of being. All of us have been corrupted by the self-driven way of pride or greed or envy. The death and decay that we see in our world is evidence of this self-driven instinct. But the message of Jesus in the scriptures actually doesn't start or end with that message of death. It starts and ends with the message that there is a way of being human which leads to life and fullness and wholeness. It actually says that humans were made good, made to live in loving unity with God and with others and with the world, made to live in this perfect picture of flourishing in life. And though we've all taken the road of self-driven death and decay, Jesus' central message was that new life is available through him. That uh, the way of death and decay, the self-driven way, has been put to death. 
He actually claimed that his life, death, and resurrection was ultimately experienced with us and for us that we could participate in. Because of what Jesus has done, we become people who die to our self-drivenness and live to the true life we're made for. Death and resurrection was the reality of our existence, and it was the only way to find true, lasting life, was to die to self-drivenness and live in Jesus' new resurrection kingdom. There's a scholar named N.T. Wright who summarizes Paul's words in this passage pretty well. He says, you need to die and be raised. You need to come out altogether from the shadowy powers that operate within the present creation, doomed as it is to decay and perish. And you need to belong instead to God's new world, the new creation that is being brought in to replace the old. The truly human life that you seek, the life of a genuine glad holiness that runs right through the personality, is to be found in that new world. Friends, through his death and resurrection, Jesus has ushered in a new kingdom of love and joy and peace. That is the gospel message. That is the good news. Not something that we've done, but something that Jesus has done. Death and resurrection. We can participate in new life here and into eternity. And that truth, the truth of our participation in that death and resurrection, transformed the early Christians and the culture around them. They shattered political and ethnic and gender boundaries because of Jesus' death and resurrection. They cared for the poor and the marginalized when no one else did because of Jesus' death and resurrection. They confessed and forgave and loved their enemies because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And all of those things made the church an unprecedented community in world history. Prior to Jesus, nothing like this had ever existed. This sort of radical inclusivity and transformation and equality never existed before Jesus. And this all happened in the face of violent persecution oftentimes and a lack of political power and social capital. It doesn't make a whole lot of historical sense. In fact, there's a historian from Yale, Kenneth Scott Latteret is his name. He says this about these early Christians. Never in so short a time has any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. So on the one hand, these Christians were transformed people who were transforming the world around them because they had a deep attentiveness to the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. But on the other hand, these Christians also regularly battled cultural pressures that pulled their attention away from the message of Jesus. There were religious pressures in those days, legalistic approaches to food or sacrifice or circumcision that many in the church felt like you can't cut those out. Just making sure a couple of you are following along. There are social pressures in that time to adopt certain modes of power that would break apart equality in the church, like men ruling over women or women ruling over men or certain ethnicities being better than others. There are political pressures of nationalism that tempted the church to conflate worship of Rome with worship of Jesus. And there were even moral pressures to behave in such a way that they would look a lot like the world, to seek after greed and hedonism and all of the pleasure that the world can provide at every expense. And so many of these earliest Christians and the Christian letters in our Bibles are referencing that tension. This radically inclusive and transformative community that was also constantly pressured to turn their attention away from God and the message of the gospel. There's one scholar I know who's described a lot of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote with four concise statements, and I think he nails it in some ways. He says, you can summarize all Paul's letters in these four statements. Grace to you. I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel message, and for the love of everything holy, stop doing stupid stuff. They're people who were transformed by the gospel message and also people who were being pulled away in so many different directions to stupid stuff. 
And this letter of Colossians was written in the middle of that tension. Paul actually wrote these words from prison. He was visited by a man named Epaphras, who was pastoring a church in a town called Colossae. And Epaphras gives the report to Paul of all of the beauty that's happening in the church and all of the stupid stuff that's happening in the church. And so Paul wrote this letter in order to address those things, to give encouragement and reminder to that early church. And these verses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, are in many ways a summary of what Paul has been getting at throughout much of the letter. He's saying, in the middle of their cultural distractions, that they need to fine-tune one thing, their attention. Refocus yourself on Jesus. And that response of Paul, I think, is a great one that we can start to integrate into our lives. I think it's a great answer to the question, how do we live as followers of Jesus in a world that's constantly pulling our attention other ways? Refocus your attention. And there are two things that he tells them to do in this passage, two things in these four verses that I think are helpful for us. Uh, Father, we pray for whatever situation is happening down the street. We pray uh, thanks for our first responders and that you would keep people safe, uh, that you would ensure that people in our neighborhood are loved and cared for. In Jesus' name. Two things he tells them to do in this passage in Colossians. He says, seek the things that are above and then to set your minds on the things that are above. Seek and set your minds. First thing, seek the things that are above. The word he uses here, to seek, it's a word that's used often in the New Testament and it refers to this consistent and steady attention upon something. It's used in a lot of different ways. So sometimes it means uh, to search for. Sometimes it means to ask questions about. Sometimes it means to learn or to endeavor to obtain or to have your eyes and ears trained on something or even to be guided by something. There's actually a, a sport that's risen in popularity recently that I think illustrates this idea of seeking well. It's not pickleball. Sorry, pickleballers. I know you were waiting. He's going to say pickleball. You got your attention last week. This week, the sport, orienteering. You guys familiar with orienteering? The idea is this. A course is laid out across diverse terrain that's largely unknown to the people when they start. And there are particular markers or flags scattered across the course. And each competitor is given two things, a compass and an orienteering map. That's all they have. And so they are to navigate as efficiently as possible through the course, hit all of the markers, and then return to where they started. First one wins. And most importantly, this requires trust in your map and compass. Certainly athleticism, certainly mental, emotional fortitude, but trust in your map or compass. A constant returning to the thing that is orienting you through your journey. There is no way to succeed in orienteering unless you have trust in your map and compass. What Paul is reminding his readers of here is that a life of health and wholeness and peace and joy, life in the kingdom of God, comes when our attention is oriented in the right direction, oriented towards the right map and compass. And that's what he means when he says we need to think, uh, seek the things that are above. The orienting things need to be the things that are above. And the word above, especially in English, can kind of be confusing for us because when we think of above, we like think of gold streets and clouds in the sky. And many of us think of afterlife or like heaven beyond our death. But that's actually not what Paul is getting at here. In fact, later on when he elaborates on what it looks like to seek the things that are above, he talks about really practical things we do here and now in earth. He's not saying withdraw yourself from the world and only think about a place you're going to go after you die. Things above is not a geographic heavenly location. It's instead the reality of Jesus's kingdom, where Jesus rules. The way of Jesus, this kingdom of Jesus, is something he embodied in his time. Remember, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. It is active. It is moving. It is something that we can participate in now. 
Following his death and resurrection, he already rules, and his rule is going to be consummated eventually. So the idea that Paul's getting at here is seek the things that are part of that new kingdom. Orient your life in such a way that those things are the things that you're focusing your attention on, not other things. So seeking the things above can mean giving your time and energy away to those more vulnerable than you, like the mobile pantry in a couple weeks. It can be advocating for the marginalized. It can be giving up your power for the sake of your neighbor. It can be devoting yourself to prayer, to nearness to God. In a world of diverse terrain, constantly pulling our attentions every which way, our response should be to reorient ourselves upon life with God in the kingdom. If you want a good picture of what that kingdom looks like, just read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. You'll get a real robust picture of what this looks like. I like how a scholar, William Barclay, describes this in his commentary on Colossians. He says, Paul is certainly not pleading for an otherworldliness in which the Christian withdraws himself from all work and activities of this world and only contemplates eternity. It's not escapist. From now on, the Christian will view everything against the backdrop of eternity and no longer live as if this world was all that mattered. This will obviously give him a new set of values. Things which the world thought important, he will no longer worry about. Ambitions which dominated the world will be powerless to touch him. He will go on using the things of the world, but he will use them in a new way. He will, for instance, set giving above getting, serving above ruling, forgiving above avenging. The Christian standard of values will be God's, not men's. Seek the things that are above. That's what Paul tells us to do. And that practice, reorienting our attention in the right direction towards the right things, is the only way we're ever going to get underneath our habits of digital distraction. See, a habit is always an extension of something deeper for us. And this practice of seeking the things that are above allows us to examine the motivation, the reason underneath the habit that we've built. See, our devices and technology are not inherently the problem. They're actually in our control. You can turn off your phone. You can break it in half and throw it against the wall. It's actually within your control if you want it to be. The device itself is not always the problem. In fact, it's often a good thing. But... The device becomes a problem when it's an extension of our own inner and outer problems and when we turn our attention to it to try to resolve those inner and outer problems. And that's often how we use our devices, if we're honest. We often post on social media, not out of love of God and love of others, but out of an insecurity that craves crowd affirmation. We stream a show not out of a deep sense of peace and presence with God, but out of a desire to bury the hard stuff, to numb ourselves, to not really feel it. We constantly check our email, not to become people of life and love, but because we have located our identity in productivity and overwork. And those behaviors will never satisfy our souls, friends. Your deepest insecurities are meant to be satisfied by the awareness that you are beloved by God, not by how popular or physically attractive or funny you are. Your deepest wounds are meant to be healed by Christ's working in and through them, not by another absurd and funny comment by Michael Scott although those sometimes are good. Your identity is meant to be secured by the fact that God's Spirit tells you you are enough, not because of your worldly accomplishment and productivity, but because you are made in the image of God. See, the problem is not intrinsically the device. The problem is that we've given our attention to it for the wrong reasons. We're seeking the wrong things there. And that's why we so often emerge from our time more confused or anxious or numb or lonely than we were before. I mean, think about it. How often in your life do you emerge from a 30-minute scrolling session and say, man, my soul feels so good right now? 
I feel so close to my neighbor and to God. It never happens, right? Why? Because we're seeking the wrong things in it. Our attention is off. We haven't placed the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection primarily before our hearts and minds, and we've allowed our attention to be diverted by the glow of a screen that will overpromise and underdeliver every time. And so there's a simple question we need to learn how to ask ourselves when it comes to our digital busyness. As we enter into our using of those things, what are we seeking? What are we looking for? Are we seeking the things that are above? Love of God and love of others, peace and joy, beauty that can transform my soul and lead me to become a more loving person? Or are we seeking fleeting pleasure, or numbing, or resolution of our insecurity? We need to become people who wisely ask ourselves that question and wisely consider it in our minds before we just blindly follow the way of our world towards our digital devices. And that process, being wise and thinking well about this, is actually what Paul is talking about when he says, set your minds on things that are above. That notion of setting your mind on something, it means to consider thoughtfully how you interact with it. There's a biblical encyclopedia that defines it this way. To employ it, to set your minds on something means to employ your faculty for thoughtful planning with emphasis on the underlying disposition or attitude that's driving you there. In other words, use your brain. Don't become sheeple. Don't mindlessly follow the consumerism or the anxiety or the fear or the insecurity of the world. Consider thoughtfully why you're engaging in something. Plan ahead. Don't just be sucked into it. And that is a radical notion in our time, friends. Most people do not plan ahead before they do things. They just do things in our culture. Most people do not consider thoughtfully how their actions are actually deeply affecting their hearts and minds. They just do them. And our tech is the same way. There's a recent Microsoft study that uh, asked people a, a single statement question and asked them to answer yes or no. The statement was this. When nothing else is occupying my mind, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. 77% of people said yes. Eight out of 10. Many of us in this room would say, when nothing else is occupying my mind, I reach for my phone. I don't think about it. I don't thoughtfully consider. I haven't set my mind rightly. I just do things. Friends, as soon as we are confronted with a pause that might bring our attention to God or life or love or health, we instantly run away from it because of our devices oftentimes. The primary reason that many of us don't feel the deep and life-giving presence and peace of God isn't because we don't want God, and it isn't because we're just really craving terrible evil. It's because our attention is too distracted to actually hear from God, to actually open-handedly receive what God might want to say. It's because we haven't set our minds on God, and we've instead rushed to set our minds on something else. Guys, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. What you give your attention to is the thing that will make you who you are. What you give your attention to is the thing that will make you who you are. There's a reason that everyone in the world wants your attention. It's because they know when they have that, they have you. We are what we give our attention to. And if we ever want to become people of deep love and joy, people of justice and care for our neighbors, it needs to start with the source of those things in Jesus. It needs to start by setting our minds on those things. Dallas Willard describes it this way in his book, The Great Omission. He says, the first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, scrolling or whatever else, right? But those are habits, not laws of gravity, and they can be broken. 
A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. And soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. Set your minds on things that are above. Thoughtfully plan, consider the ways that it's affecting you and the motivations that are driving you there. And that all sounds great to many of us, but there's also a really sinister part of tech. This isn't a, just a neutral enemy. It's really sneaky, actually. See, most of us, most of the time, don't even realize that we've fallen victim to the attention suck of our devices until we're 20 minutes deep in an article about Timothy Chalamet's dating life, or whatever it is. And much of the tech industry wants that to be the case. They want to suck us in before we even realize what's happened. They've actually developed their strategy from slot machines. A little known fact, uh, slot machines in the U.S. actually make more money than Major League Baseball and the film industry combined. Slot machines. And here's why. They give you small, seemingly inconsequential dopamine hits over and over and over that seem like they're of no consequence. A quarter here, a buck there, five more dollars here. The small quantities combined with the dopamine hit of lights and sounds and the potential of winning, they hook people. Slot machines become death by a thousand paper cuts. And tech is designed the same way. Tech loops you in with small, seemingly inconsequential posts or videos or messages, and then the dopamine hit makes you want to instinctively keep going back. And so you think, well, I could just scroll for five minutes. You scroll for five minutes. And then all of a sudden, you've been on your phone for five hours in the day. We are all carrying a sneaky little slot machine around in our pockets. And so the way we need to fight this is by really understanding oftentimes how it's designed and then interrupting the process that we often don't interrupt. Interrupting the process and actually taking time to consider what we're doing. So I think there's three things that we can start to practice in our lives to interrupt this process of the sneaky slot machine. Three things. Pause, pray, and then proceed. Pause, pray, and proceed. First, pause. So when you feel an urge to open up your phone or click on a specific app, pause first. And take that moment and consider, what am I seeking? Just take that little moment. All it takes is a couple seconds to interrupt this process. What am I seeking here? What am I devoting my attention to here? And is it something that will help me love God and love others? Is it something that will help me participate in the kingdom? That will bring life and beauty and joy? And what you'll find is even that little pause for a few seconds is going to lead you to a deeper awareness of yourself, how often you're running to things out of motivations that you didn't know beforehand. And it will also lead you to say, oh man, I just instinctively do this. I need to interrupt this more. So pause first. Second, pray. After you've paused, take just a few short seconds and pray. Seek God's presence in that moment. Ask God to be with you as you consider what the motivations are. Ask him to unearth what's going on in you. Ask him to expose if you're entering into it for the wrong reasons. And ask him to remind you of God's love and peace in the middle of what might be insecurity or fear or the rest. So pause, pray, and then proceed. After praying, decide how to proceed. And you may decide after pausing and praying that actually you're motivated by the right things. Remember, tech is not inherently bad. Sometimes you're motivated by a good, thoughtful text to a friend or a good post that you wanted to share about something that really changed your life. Sometimes that's true. That's not, it's not a bad thing. Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes we're being driven there for all sorts of other reasons that are not focused on the things that are above. And so you have to take the time to pause, to pray, 
and then to proceed. Interrupt the process. Don't just jump right in. Build those habits in your rhythms. And you'll find yourself, slowly but steadily, over time, that's how habits work, over time, you'll find yourself fighting against the busyness and distraction that often keeps you feeling distant from God and from others. I want to close with a quote from a guy named E.O. Wilson, who's a biologist who's talked about our current digital age. He says, the real problem of humanity is that we have Stone Age emotions and brains, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. We become people with hijacked attentions, and our tech has become our god, ever with us, ever around us, ever beckoning to us. When your phone is in the room with you, it is screaming at you to pick it up. And we need to be people who take back our attentions, again, in the quiet of our lives, in focused attention on God. We need to become people who seek the things that are above, set our minds on the things that are above, because it's there that we're going to find health. So this week, let's become people who pause, who pray, and then proceed. This week, let's do something that really no one else in our culture wants to do. Pause, pray, and proceed. Let's pay attention to the right things in the right ways. Because when we do that, it will transform us and transform the world around us. Let's pray.